Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team. We appreciate you leading us in worship and taking us to the throne. You know, I intensely love Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for what he's done in my life. And I really love his church. His church. I'm, I'm a churchman. I love, I love what, what Christ does in the church. I believe in the church. And I believe that, that the church is God's plan and it's a great plan. You know, today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the pastor's role. And, um, you know, we're at the third point here of our overall theme, orders concerning the church. And um, this third point is orders concerning ministry and being involved in ministry. And it's a a very sensitive area. Um, It's sensitive and its sensitivity is reflected um, by the, the brief pastoral tenures across our nation and within our convention and denomination. A lot of times we see pastors that come and they, um, the, their length of, of ministry at, a, at a, a given church is maybe 18 months to two years. And um, I would like to say that's, you know, um, rare, but it's not. It's, it's more like the norm. And, um, you know, denominational leaders are attempting to understand and to share their findings uh, so that we can kind of, you know, squelch that tide so that we can have better uh, results and, and better ministry. There was a Western rancher who asked his district superintendent, uh, uh, they were talking about calling a pastor, and he said, well, what, how big a man you want, you know, and, and what are you looking for? And uh, the, the, <laughs> the rancher said this, he said, uh, we're not overly particular, but when he's on his knees, we'd like him to reach to heaven, okay? And, and I think that's a, a fair assessment of what you look for in a pastor. You know, a leader in the church must be qualified and willing to use that office to help the church. And I, I think this is very important. You know, don't look at this list that we're going to read here in just a moment as a, a, a row of hurdles, if you will, uh, to jump over on the way towards leadership, but consider what these things, these qualities tell us about God and what they tell us about his character. And, and those who are leading his church, he des- desires these qualities in them. You see, in this listing that I'm going to read in just a moment, there's no, um, <laughs> there's no spiritual gifts listed here. And I think it's important because God is more interested in leaders who evidence character in their lives rather than those who elevate spiritual gifts. So let's look at what they found and compare it to what our Bible says, what God's word says, and uh, what he calls us to be. In 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, I want to read down through verse 7. It says this. God's word says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse three, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And Father, what a, what a great opportunity you give us each and every day. Father, to be your church, to be your hands and feet. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful for what you did on the cross for each one of us. And, and Father, our <laughs> that sacrifice demands our best. And Father, I'm thankful for what you have done through the Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us. And I pray, Father, that this morning that we would see clearly uh, our role in the ministry of leading others to Christ and discipling them. Father, help me to preach your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us and lead us as our teacher and guide. And it's in, his, in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You know, so I asked the question this morning, why is leadership so important? Why is leadership important, especially in the church? You know, Christ said in Luke 6, 40, he said, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone when fully trained will be like his teacher. And I, I think that's a very important verse because he's telling us that we are going to become like him. And, and in Hosea 40, excuse me, Hosea 4 verse 9 says, and it will be like people, like priests. And so my, my, where I'm coming from this morning is that our leaders, the leaders in the church set the, the tone, they set the temperature, they set the ceiling, if you will, um, in our churches as they essentially reproduce themselves. And so as we follow someone, we need to make sure that we're following someone who is following the Lord. We need to make sure that, and, and as we go through some of these qualifications, we need to understand that, that you know, we disciple others and we reproduce who we are. We cannot take people where we have not been ourselves. We can say, well, you could, you could go to, to San Antonio, you could go somewhere, but if you've never been there, you don't know the way there. And so it, it's interesting because in considering this reality, Kent Hughes said this, he said, it is a sobering fact that as the leadership goes, so goes the church. Of course, there are always exceptions, but it is generally true that if leadership is word-centered, then the church will be word-centered. If the leadership is mission-minded, then the church will be mission-minded. If the church is sincere, if the leadership is sincere, then the people will be sincere. 
And if the leadership is kind, the church will be kind. And here's the scary part. If it's positive, that's great. But if it's negative, it's exponential. If the leadership is unloving, if the leadership is narrow and stingy, it begets a church that is unloving, narrow, and stingy. See, I would encourage each one of us to pick one or two areas where you might sense that you know, you're, you're weak in or you're, that you need help in that needs building up and, and, and begin to study that quality in God's word and ask God to begin to develop it in your life. Folks, that's what we need. We need application in what we're doing. So I would encourage you to do that. In looking at this passage, uh, we, we recognize right away that uh, it says an overseer. And this really is the word for bishop, uh, the, the overseer, the, we use it interchangeably with elder and pastor, um, but overseer. And, and I would say to you this morning that, that God's people are, are like sheep in that we need shepherds. We need shepherds to watch over us. We need shepherds to protect us. We need shepherds to lead us and, and, and recognize that, that I am merely an under-shepherd. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And we follow him. And so I'm here as an under-shepherd in this local body, but I'm not the leader. He's the leader. And we follow him. Now, I love this because it talks about it. it it's a fine work that the, that the overseer decides to do. And, and, you know, verse two kind of talks about, um, is largely, <laughs> verse two and three is largely has to do with self-discipline. And, and, and I want you to read these and, and think about that. Um, verse two says, an overseer then must be above reproach. It takes self-discipline to remain above reproach. The husband of one wife, it takes self-discipline. Temperate, it takes self-discipline. Prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. All of these take self-discipline. Kind of verse two is more on the positive side and I wanna say verse three is kind of on the, a little bit on the negative side. And, and verse three it says, not addicted to wine. And, and when it talks about that, not given to wine, not addicted to wine. And really the word in, in Greek is beside wine, okay? Para uh, oinos. And, and uh, the, the person who spends too much time beside the wine. In other words, it's under control, the, under the control of the wine. And, you know, when, when we are uh, inebriated, it, it, uh, it blurs the senses, it, it uh, clouds the mind. It makes this person more emotionally unstable. If you don't believe me, have you ever sat with a drunk for a while? They go from crying to laughing to crying and back and forth. You know, it would also point to an underlying need uh, for him to have to numb reality for time. And so when you think about all these things, God in his word wants us to be clear thinking, very alert 
discerning individuals capable of making decisions. And so as an overseer, that's what you want is somebody who's clear-headed, who can do that, who can remain that way. It also says, not addicted to wine, nor, excuse me, or pugnacious. And that word pugnacious means not being violent. Not someone who is what we might call, you know, a striker. And, and, and uh, you know, when we think about that, it's, it's someone who's, who's quick with blows, okay? I want to say physical or verbal. But they're always looking for a fight. That's kind of what pugnacious means. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, a good leader knows how to take the heat without spreading the flames. And I think that's a very good description of, of, of the role of overseer. Take the heat without spreading the flames. It also says in verse three that he is, it says, but gentle and, and, and peaceable. Gentle meaning yielding and forbearing, you know. Um, a gentle leader doesn't demand his own way or, or lash out when treated unfairly. He doesn't feel threatened when others disagree with him. His words and actions are seasoned with grace and forgiveness and kindness. Peaceable, not quarrelsome, not trigger happy in their relationships with others. In other words, you know, quick to the draw or just itching for an argument. And, and really that's, that's what it's saying, don't be this way. This person knows how to keep his gun holstered, <laughs> take some self-discipline until he needs it for the real enemy. He also says in that verse, verse three, free from the love of money, not covetous. See, money isn't the problem, but it's our attitude towards money that gets us into trouble. But the leader is free, not from money, but from the love of it. And he is to be a model of generosity and, and the simplicity of lifestyle. I love the way this is phrased, love God and use money. Love God and use money and never ever get that reversed. Because if you do, you'll be in trouble goes on and it talks about domestically, um, at home. He must be one who manages his own household well. Um, and, and, you know, you think about that, four and five go together. And, and really, the word manages, you know, we might think of rules or, or is in charge or, or is in command of, but, but carries the idea of governing, of leading, and giving direction to the family, because he is the head of the household. And I, I look at this and, you know, you think about it. Paul doesn't speak of managing a business when he's talking about the church. And the reason is because it's not a business. It's a family. And, and, and it's so different from what we see. The church is a family. It's not a business. And so it makes sense that he would say he must be one who manages his own household well. And I love this because, you know, Chuck Swindoll also said, he said he has a, 
It's a heavenly father, not a chairman of the board. It's brothers and sisters, not shareholders. We have a groom and we are the bride. I mean, Jesus Christ is not an impersonal boss. But this person, this overseer, he's able to do this with character, with integrity, and with compassion. See, the experience, and this is highly, this is, this is huge, because the experience gained in the home helps develop sensitive compassion for the role that will be filled in the church. See, I'm a family man. I love my family. I love our children. I love our grandchildren. I model that in staff with our staff here. I want them to be family people because God created the family. It's his design. If, if I win the whole world to Christ, but I lose my own family, what have I done? That, fa- that family is my first ministry that God has given me and that he's given you. And each one of us are ministers in our family and in our home. See, these leadership skills that we develop in the home are the prerequisite for using them in the church. And we've been able to manage our time when we've been able to do that, when we've been able to manage our our priorities, our staff, our ministries, and all of these other things. It's because we were able to learn and the proving ground was in the home. See, it doesn't matter if someone is successful in every other area of their life. Let's have a look at your family. That's what we need to see. Verse six, and not a new convert. So we we talk about humility here. We talk about being, you know, it being humbly, um, not prideful, the opposite of that. But he's saying that it shouldn't be somebody who is new, a new convert, Someone needs to, needs to be discipled and developed uh, towards this, not a newly planted individual. Someone who's seasoned by life's journeys and triumphs and failures. Someone who knows the joys of life, but also the disappointments. Verse seven talks about publicly, and he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil you see a good testimony and reputation is needed with those outside the church I mean how does a person how does a leader speak to the waitress that brings him the food how does he speak to the cashier who accidentally shorts him some some change, some money. See, all of these things matter. Vance Havner said once, he said, a leader is a person with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. So when, you, when you're looking for a pastor, when you're looking for a teacher, when you're looking for a church leader, ask yourself this question. Does their inner character measure up to their outward appearance? Is their integrity 
with what they do and what they say. Domestically, I ask this question. Would his family vote for him? That'll tell you a lot right there. Will his family vote for him? The other thing is, is it too soon? Is he green? Is he new? Is he, is he a new Christian? And publicly, <laughs> I love this, would his coworkers smile at the news of him being raised up in leadership? Would they smile and say, yes, he, he needs that. He ought to do that. That would be great. Or do they look at it and say, are, are we talking about the same guy? You've heard that and I have too. It's like, wow, they're considering that. See, some pastors, some pastors don't have a clear understanding of their role. And we don't, we don't know what always needs to be done. And don't, don't misunderstand. Every pastor I know sees what needs to be done, but few understand how to do it. I mean, you may be saying to yourself, that's ridiculous. Every person knows that, that when you're called of God that the world needs Jesus. And all we have to do is share Jesus with them and they'll be saved. It's just that simple. Is it really? Let me share with you what professionals are finding in our churches. A new pastor comes. He wants to get his people fired up and filled up and, and fulfilling the Great Commission on a daily basis. And after he's preached his, his best sermons, he's read some books on motivation and, 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 and people are still sitting in their pews seemingly unmoved and unchanged and probably mumbling to themselves, is this the best our pulpit committee could do? Disheartened and frustrated, the pastor looks for greener pastures. See, the misunderstanding here is that some pastors think that God has called them to inherit a good situation. <laughs> when in reality, he calls us to go out into the world and create a good situation. Some people believe it might take four or five years to do that, for this growth process to take place. And we don't often wait long enough because erroneously we believe <laughs> that we can have instant success. But it doesn't work that way. You know, our staff here at NBC is probably tired of hearing me say this. We're on a 30-year journey so we might as well get started. I mean, it's a long term. It's the long game that we're concerned with. See, our churches have tried to be spiritual with non-spiritual tools. And it just doesn't work that way. We get so frustrated and blame our failures on whatever's handy. When we really don't understand the degree of sacrifice the degree of sacrifice needed to get the job done. See, when we look at these spiritual qualifications, we don't normally think of them as being sacrificial in nature. 
We think, oh yeah, he's got to do all that and more. These are the qualifications. If, if he doesn't fit in this box, then, then that's not our man. But what I'm, I'm telling you is these are sacrificial in nature. But when we begin to actually live the qualifications, we find out in, that indeed they are sacrificial. I mean, some friends used to give me a bad time. They'd say things like, you know, minister's life must be easy. I wish all I had to do was work a day and a half a week. I know that's not true. And you do too. This is the hardest work I've ever done in my entire life. I used to think that working 50 to 60 hours a week in a very hot kitchen was hard. Line in someone else's pockets. And I'd sweat out a bunch of fluids and be on my feet all day. And I'd, I'd, I'd work through this hectic lunch rush and a dinner rush. And I'd, I'd just look forward to going home and sitting down and getting off my feet for a little while. See, my prayer for myself and for other ministers is that we would be able to stay on our feet until God calls us and lets us know it's time to come home. Sometimes I get the feeling that ministers think God has called them to the ministry to go to the mountaintop when in reality he calls us into the valley. We want to be on the mountaintop. Man, it's glorious on the mountaintop. But we're called into the valley to serve. He sends us into the valley because that's where we find his wounded children. We're called to rescue those who are perishing. And in essence, the Lord says to us, you must become a certain kind of person before you enter the valley in my name. So, where in our society, where is going to produce such high quality people? Our society won't. If you follow our society, it will take you further and further and further away from what God desires. But here's the truth. Christian homes will provide the atmosphere to raise children up that are qualified to meet these holy requirements. You're not going to find it in the world. You're not going to find it in our society. But you will find it in Christian homes that are dedicated to the Lord. I mean, don't get me wrong about sacrificial service. I'm not saying a minister has to give everything to the church. I'm saying he must be willing. A responsible minister will learn to serve well, both in his family and in the church. See, masterful is the minister who serves the Lord sacrificially while not alienating his family from the church. Unfortunately, some ministers are not able 
to maintain a healthy balance. I grew up in a home. I saw where church was the absolute priority. I also recognized that that we do the best that we can. We may not understand those healthy cycles of rest and relaxation and work and service and ministry and all of those things. We have to minister to our family. We minister to the church. They go together. They're not separate. But I think this is huge because it contributes a lot when they're out of balance to short tenures. Some churches don't have a clear understanding of the pastor's role. I mean, some churches don't understand what what needs to be done. I've also recognized that some beloved churches see with their eyes but don't understand with their hearts the mandate that Jesus Christ has given to us. That also brings shorter tenures of pastors. You know, I read about a a person who became angry with a pastor because the church voted to put some surplus funds in a savings account. And this gentleman didn't believe that the church should be um, drawing interest on their money. And so he went to the pastor's home and he told the pastor that he was leaving the church if the pastor didn't get the money out of the interest-bearing account. And the pastor said, you know, he, said, he responded by saying the church voted in business meeting and conference to do that and he really didn't have any control over that. But then the guy said, the preacher is supposed to be in control and tell the church what to do. You know, this pastor was also aware that this man was among the group that fired the previous pastor on the grounds that he was trying to take control of the church. See, I believe that that particular church is not growing because some of their pastors, they keep them off balance so that they don't know what to expect from God's people. And the most faithful and contented churches are those who have fixed their sights on God's calling for their church and have decided how they're going to go about doing that ministry. See, I believe that every church has its eyes, that has its eyes fixed on what God is doing, will experience long, healthy pastoral tenures. See, usually when I see short pastoral tenures in a church's history, I immediately think this church is not good at relationships. That's the problem. See, some churches don't understand the degree of sacrifice. I pastored a church that had a track record of hiring a pastor every 18 months, and they'd been doing it for decades. I was there five and a half years. I felt like, man, I went well beyond any, any of the, the previous pastors for quite some time. But I want to tell you, There are churches that are kind of like a meat grinder. They grind up pastors and they spit them out and they go get a different pastor. And the truth of the situation is this. 
it's easier to find another pastor than it is for me to get my heart right with God. Keep it going, do what we need to do. Let's just keep it running. Unfortunately, that is the norm and not the exception. Every time that happens, every time the church loses their pastor, that church loses something. And not the least is the credibility in the community. Because whether we like it or not, people are watching us. They're watching all around us to see how we are functioning, to see if we do love each other. See, a whole lot could be said right now for having the right minister, finding the right church, and and everything lining up, and everything's good. And a lot can also be said about a church working faithfully with its staff and pouring into them. I've always said that good churches make good pastors. But this is sacrificial work. And the holy objective of the church is worth everything that we can put into it. As I wrap this up, I want to invite our worship team to come back up. And they're going to lead us in a a couple more songs. But understand this, that Jesus promised that his work would be hard. He didn't say you're signing up for an easy task. But he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome every problem that Satan throws at us. I love that. He's given us what we need. He's he's given us the power and the spiritual insight to recognize Satan and his work. You know, it's been a mystery why we blame others when we know who's behind it all. When we know that it's the enemy that is, is, is attacking us, if we readily practice the gift of discernment, spiritual discernment, we will have longer pastor tenures, we will have happier churches and more fruitful ministry for the Lord. Then the community will look at us and they will be drawn to Christ also because of the way that we love each other. See, we each have a place of service in this great endeavor. So I ask you this morning, what is God calling you to be? What is he calling you to become? What is he calling you to be? Look at it this way. Maybe God is calling you to become a pastor an overseer, someone who's willing to do and, 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 and use these qualifications in a very sacrificial way as his under shepherd. Maybe he's calling you to that great work. Maybe he's calling you as a Christian parent to raise godly children, future leaders for the church. Or maybe he's calling you 
to be an influential and dangerous Christian. Somebody who's willing to storm the gates of hell and to share Christ with people so that they don't spend an eternity in hell. But whatever he's calling you to be, to become, understand it's gonna involve sacrifice. Something must die. And it's probably our worldliness. It's probably our, our love for things that are ungodly. But we are all called to be ministers. My job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Not to do all the ministry. But to equip y'all to minister in his name. How will you respond? Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time. And Father, we're thankful that you are a God of second chances.